Well, welcome to our coronavirus party. So, tonight, we're going to begin First Chronicles. I know all of you are anxious. You've been reading for the last couple weeks the first ten chapters of First Chronicles. Is your pastors instructed you, you've practiced the Hebrew pronunciations, so your diction will be perfect. <coughs> Look, we, uh, we face kind of a dilemma as we start this, this book. This is an incredible book, and we want to do it justice. Every syllable, every consonant is literally inspired and breathed by God. And if you read every consonant in the first nine chapters, it could be somewhat tedious to do in a public setting. Cassidy's let me know that she volunteers because we're going to cover nine chapters tonight. And uh, to demonstrate that, Cass, would you read First Chronicles 4 and verse 3? I know how you've been practicing it. And uh, Ohad will be grading your performance. And there's no pressure, but it's recorded for posterity's sake. Uh, everybody else be in the first chapter and first verse. That's where we're going to start. We just wanted to demonstrate this done really well. <laughs> yeah. These were the sons of Etam, yeah. Jezreel, Get it. Ishma, it, and Ibash. Their sister was named Has a Little Pony. Has a little pony. Yeah. So we can spend the next nine chapters laughing at the fact that we have absolutely no idea how to say these names. And every 30 seconds, you won't remember what came 30 seconds before. Or we could fly through the chapters, act like they're not there, not a part of the inspired word of God, and just overlook them. Those would be two extreme positions. When you are studying the word, we encourage you to read every word. We encourage you to look deeply into it. When we're presenting the word, we trust that you're doing that. And so tonight, we're going to opt for a third option. We've chosen to cover every concept in the first nine chapters in one night. And we're going to do that. If you fall asleep, uh, God will forgive you. And we might. <laughs> um, our hope in doing it this way is that you will not get so focused on the trees that you miss the forest. Because there is a very specific reason that Chronicles is written the way that it is. Let's start with its Hebrew title, which is also the title of our first nine chapters tonight. So in Hebrew, the books of First and Second Chronicles are called Divrei Hayamim. And it means the words concerning the days. Amen. The words concerning the days. Chronicles, what you need to know, both books are considered one book. When you think through this, I think if we were going to let somebody organize American literature, we probably should not give that to a Vietnamese student their first year in the country. We should probably give it to somebody that is deeply, deeply invested and familiar with it. For that reason, when we see that the Septuagint labels First and Second Chronicles para le pomina, which means supplements, 
and they consider it a supplemental book to First and Second Kings, I reject that idea entirely. Wow. I believe Jesus rejected that idea, and we'll show you that this evening. One other thing that we would like to from the name itself, from the Latin Vulgate, Chromicon is how we get the name Chronicles. So we are working through multiple languages in what people have called the book. But in the original Hebrew language, like we just mentioned before, they were united and it had a different name for a reason. So First and Second Kings provides the political record of this time period. First and Second Kings is similar to the books of Chronicles, but as you study it, you notice that it provides a succession of kings in a political sense. First and Second Chronicles, if you are noticing it, it will provide almost similar accounts, but in a religious aspect, in a priestly aspect. It provides a religious record of those books. Along with Ezra and Nehemiah, these two books were added to the Old Testament last. They were probably compiled by Ezra after turning from the exile. See, many people have debated who the author is. The majority of Jewish tradition states that Ezra wrote it. And just as a small personal plug, my friends over there have been married seven years and now have their firstborn son named Ezra. Ezra! So I'm going to go ahead and roll with the fact that I think Ezra wrote these books. <laughs> this book is almost as fat as that baby. <laughs> we want to start with a pic picture that I know you're familiar with. Many of you have it in your Bibles. When you are looking at the structure of the Tanakh, which we're going to do quite a bit tonight, understand that it begins with the Torah or the law. A good English word for Torah might also be instruction. Then the book is organized to move to the Nevim, but the Nevim are organized into former prophets and latter prophets. That's an important distinction. Did they come before captivities or after captivities? And then in the third section of the Tanakh, we get to the writings. Now, I think you can see on this screen, the last book in the writings is Chronicles. Now, that's important because when you think of the last book of the Older Testament, what book comes to mind? But that's false. It is not. And all of the connections that we tend to make between the last chapter of Malachi and the first chapters of our Bible are erroneous connections in, in a sense because that is not what the Jewish people, God, or the Messiah himself intended. And we'll show you that in this next slide. When you're noticing, I know most of us have heard that Chronicles is the last book in the Hebrew order. But think about what that means for a second. The book of Chronicles in the Jewish mind would come directly before the book of Matthew. So think about that for a second. Those books are connected in a way. We often like to think that Malachi leads into Matthew because it talks about Elijah coming as the prophet. That's not how a Hebrew mind would work. They would think of First and Second Chronicles leading right into the book of Matthew. So I'm going to show you another picture that you're familiar with. Uh, the Tanakh begins with the Torah. In the middle, we have the Nevi'im, the prophets, and we have the Ketuvim. It's interesting to see the way Jesus gave this creed, credence. Luke 24, 44, he says, He said to them, This is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of 
Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms, which is another word for the writings. So here Jesus is authorizing the law, prophets, and writings in its structure. You're going to see that that becomes increasingly more important. It's not just filler at the beginning of a Bible study. It's important because Chronicles begins with genealogies. How does the book of Matthew begin? There's an intended connection there. And, and it's a connection that we can't lose. For your notes, I know many of you are new with us. We want to begin to show you a few slides so that you see Hebrew names for Bibles, for, for the parts of the Bible, so that you understand its construction. So when you're looking at this slide, we're going to do our very best for, to pronounce it. But while you're listening to these names, I want you to consider that it's going to tell a story. So we have Genesis, that is Beersheba. We have Exodus, that is Shemot. Leviticus, that is Vayigra. Numbers, that is Vaymidbar. Deuteronomy, that is Devarim. This would read, in the beginning, these are the names he called in the desert and gave his words. So when every Hebrew child looks at the first five books that God gave to their people, the story that is being told just by hearing the names of the books before you read anything in it, is that in the beginning, these are the names. This would be the names of the people that he gave his word to. He called them, and he brought them into a desert, and he gave them words of life. How many of you know that's your story too? Yeah. yeah. But it was their story before it was ever your story. And it was a mystery that it would ever become your story. Your forefathers were goat-worshipping Gentiles. <laughs> the next section of the Hebrew Bible is the Nevi'im. This is their ordering in the scrolls. Sometimes they had slightly different combinations, but this is what they looked like. The uh, third slide that we have for you is the ordering of the Ketuvim. In the ordering of the Ketuvim, we've got the Psalms all the way through Chronicles at last. We have the five books, uh, what is it, the Megilot? Yeah. The five books uh, sandwiched in between, but the most important aspect is to see this in its original form and notice what it would have been speaking to you. With Genesis being first, starting with the genealogy, and Chronicles ending last with the genealogy, it's almost like it's pointing somewhere. These are the writings, and the last among the writings is Chronicles. This means there is a special link between this book and the Brit Padishah, and we're going to build on that throughout this teaching. In general, here is the subject matter pertaining to the three areas of the Hebrew Bible. When you think through this, because Hebrew is written in consonants and vowels were added, the word Tanakh becomes an acrostic. And in this acrostic, the T represents Torah, the N, Navim, and the K, Ketuvim. But it also tells the chronological story of Israel's history. The Torah focuses on the founding of Israel. The Navim focus on from moving from the promised land to two very special captivities. And the purpose for that is so that you're warned about what causes captivity. Having said that, as we're in Chronicles tonight, the Ketuvim have to do with how you live faithfully in your historical context. So if Chronicles comes last, then it is significant that this book relates to us how to live faithfully in a historical context. I find that extraordinary since it begins with nine chapters of genealogy 
which we don't see as significant. But you do see it as significant when you read something like Hebrews 11 and see what the ancients were commended for. You do see it as significant when you understand what is being conveyed. So one of the things that we want to do tonight is show you that Chronicles is written with a subject matter, with a theme, and with promises that remind the people how to be faithful in their current context. There's a scripture that comes to mind for us regarding that. It's Psalm 119, 49 through 50. We'll put it on the screen, but take a minute and just turn there. This is something that's worth reflecting on. We're about to pick up a rapid pace because we have much to cover. But the Lord has been moving through Psalm 119 in multiple of our services. Somebody say there when you're there. Remember your word to your servant, for you have given me hope. My comfort in my suffering is this. Your promise preserves my life. The writings address our historical context and how to live a faithful life in it. The Psalms and Chronicles are both writings. You're going to begin to notice as we go through this that God interweaved through a man breathing in him an inspired word that encapsulates the promises, the standards, the inclining of the heart that we see inside the law. It also gives an answer to the warnings and the judgments that have come in the prophets and how to actually get it right. The writings are intended to bring us to a place where we don't just know the word of God, have our orthodoxy, but learn to orthopraxy, walk it out rightly. Anybody excited about that idea? Let me just go ahead and give away a part of the ending from the beginning and the hopes that you can connect the dots. You do not see promises when you read a genealogical record. But the people that were given the book are the people whose genealogies are tied to the book. And so they do see it as a promise, and they should. An over-spiritualization of some of Paul's words have caused people to disconnect the specific people with the specific promises. And Chronicles and Matthew and Luke all start with the specific people that these promises are given to. And it's a reminder of how to be faithful in your historical context as your forefathers were. The Bible is about one family... One, one, fam, one man, one family, and one nation. The Bible is about how that one man, one family, and one nation lives in that promise. So as we look at the Torah in this slide, next slide, I want you to see this. There we go. If you look at the Torah, the Torah is intended, we say the Torah is intended to incline our hearts. Well, originally it was intended to incline their hearts to walk in the promise that they have been given. The Nevi'im was given to warn their souls that if they do not do certain things, they will not participate, that generation, in the promise. And the Ketuvim was given to guard or guide their strength so that they will walk in the promises given to them. This is found in Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 5. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and with all your strength. Or you could say, love the Lord your God by reading the Torah, by walking in the way of the prophets, and by heeding the, the Ketuvim. 
While you're thinking on that subject, just as some color, it is true that our forefathers in this country were given a document. It wasn't divinely inspired, but it has the words in it that we were all endowed by our creator with certain unalienable rights. That doesn't mean that that phrase has no meaning to a Norwegian. What is true is universally true, but it wasn't written to that Norwegian. And because it wasn't written to him, he may not find the same inspiration in it that you do, especially not in its specificity. I want to start by going over the first verses of Chronicles and the last verses of Chronicles so that you can see a beginning and an end to it. Is that all right? Yeah. Yeah. Good, because it's what we're going to do even if it's not all right. <laughs> Megan, you take First Chronicles 1, 1 through 3, and Mandy. Man, Mandy is a beautiful little woman sitting over there, isn't she? Yeah. God's got a fine future for that girl. You're going to take Second Chronicles 36 and verse 23. For your notes, these are the first and the last verses of Chronicles, which is one book. First Chronicles 1, 1 through 3. Adam, Seth, Enoch, Kenan, Mahalalel. Oh, she's speaking in tongues. <laughs> Enoch, Methuselah, Lamech, Noah, the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Jephthah. You got it, honey. Now let's go to Second Chronicles 36, 23 through 3. In case you haven't caught it, Chronicles then goes from the first human being on the planet to the reestablishment of God's house on earth with his people on earth. Chronicles takes us from Adam all the way to the reestablishment after a fall of God's people. The way we wrote it in our notes is first and second Chronicles, which is one book, take the form of a history commencing with Adam in 1 Chronicles 1.1 through the death of Saul with fragmentary segments ending with the decree of Cyrus, king of Persia, around 538 B.C. in 2 Chronicles 36.23. David and Judah are focal points throughout this book, and there is an emphasis on priestly and Levitical orders. This plan that we're talking about It has been in the mind of God from the creation of the world right up to the point that the book was being compiled. To put that in perspective, God did not, as so many seem to think that he did, experience a failure on the part of his people and then go, ah, guess we need a new plan. (laughs) To give you some concept of that, My friends are going to hand out a few scriptures that point to this, and you'll like them because they're in the Newer Testament. But before they were in the Newer Testament, they were in the Tanakh. Who wants to read? JJ got his hand up first. Matthew 25, 34 through 35. We're going to hand out the rest. Hayes, get Revelation 13, 8. Nolan, we get 1 Peter 1, 
20, and then we'll hand out some more after that. JJ, you can read whenever you're ready. Matthew 25, 34 through 35. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance, the kingdom, prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. You know, it's really interesting that the scenery there is that he's standing on the Mount of Olives as the king of Israel, and yes, the nations are gathered, but who's he the king of? Israel. And this has been prepared for you. Who is he speaking to? Israelites. Since the creation of the world. This is not plan two, three, four, five, six, or seven. It was always God's plan that a son of David would sit on the throne and reign forever. It's been his plan since Adam. Amen. Who had Revelation 13, 8? All inhabitants of the earth will worship the beast. All whose names have not been written in the book of life belonging to the lamb that was slain from the creation of the world. Wow. It's almost like God planned this. Let's do 1 Peter 1.20. He was chosen before the creation of the world but was revealed in these last times for your sake. He was chosen, chosen before the creation of the world for the Jewish people first and for the Gentiles to be included into. Now with this understanding, it's important to notice that the chronicle, chronicler in First and Second Chronicles, he is clearly tracing a promise from Adam through the rebuilding of the temple and the restoration wow. of Israel. Remember, the book starts with nine chapters of genealogy and we end with them returning from exile. What does that tell you about what the chronicler is seeing in history? His particular emphasis, get this for a second, First and Second Chronicles, the writer, his emphasis throughout the entire books is on one thing, the Davidic line. Wow. The Davidic line takes the showcase in First and Second Chronicles. Jude, why don't you pick up with uh, Ephesians here, the... I want you to consider for a moment, we can't cover the entire book of Ephesians. Proverbs 25, 2 says something that's interesting. It's to the glory of God to conceal a matter, but it is the glory of kings to search it out. Yeah. Ephesians, in a couple places, cues us into a mystery that the entire Tanakh has been aiming at. And you can see a clear progression that we're about to go over in Chronicles, that the Tanakh was aiming constantly at a greater revelation of something. It was building in intensity. Ephesians 3, 6 says this. This mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, Amen. members together of one body, and shares together in the promise of Jesus Christ. All too often in a church like ours where we hear this, we don't actually work through the scripture in that manner. When you read it, we still think about it as to us first before them. But when we learn to retrain our minds in accordance with what the scripture actually says, we've been invited into something that is a spectacle before the nations. That is something that the whole world had no idea was going to occur. That they didn't realize what God's plan was through his people. That he might have men and women from Colombia in this room. Men yeah. and women from India in this yes. room. Men and women from all over the United States in this room. This was something that God had intended to do from the very beginning. And rather than ignore 
how that mystery played out, it ought to cause us to grow in appreciation. It ought to cause us to grow in a feeling that, man, we've been given the riches of this world. We've been given everything in Christ. The fact that we were included, man, how could I be sad for a moment? Look, as Judah gets ready to go through parts of Ephesians 1 to get us back to Chronicles, understand there are some 15 books in the Bible that have genealogies in them. Your genealogy is not in it. (laughs) You know why? It was necessary to trace the genealogy of those to whom it was promised to you and your descendants. Every once in a while, you get an enemy's genealogy in there. Do you know why? Because it was a problem in the day of the man who was writing it, and it will be a problem in the last day. And the Bible is taking note of it. Listen, we all have been in a conversation in a far, far away place where the words coming out of your mouth are not what someone is hearing because they've already made up their mind about it. Because it's easy for everybody in the room. Romans 13! Romans 13! <laughs> and it's not going to hurt your feelings. Let me use Brenton as an example. He is a fine young man that is working hard to grow in the Lord, grow in his workplace. Many times you may catch Brenton hearing what you're saying but because he had a preconceived idea, he doesn't hear all that you were saying. I know no one in this room has ever done that. That's, you know, 10, 20, 30. Okay. Read Ephesians 1, 4 through 13 with me. And I need you to listen to the verbiage because the assumption beforehand causes us to miss the beauty of what God is causing us to be revealed to us. We're actually going to segment it slightly to emphasize something for you. You'll hear it. We're going to pick up in verse 4. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In him... That's verse 11. Got it. In him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. In order that we, who were the first to hope in Christ... Pause for a minute. Just think here for a second. Who is speaking? Who wrote the book of Ephesians, saints? The Apostle Paul. Was he a Norwegian? No. Who were the first disciples of Christ? Where were they from? Jews. Who was the first to believe in him? We, who were the first to hope in Christ, might be for the praise of his glory. And you also were included in Christ. Who's you, saints? That's everybody except Ohad in the room. We know for sure, even with some genetic testing as of late. (laughs) When you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit. See, things begin to change in a viewpoint when they realize that even the Gentiles were getting filled with the Holy Spirit. Surely, if God's spirit of holiness could indwell them, that something could be done with their lives. Do you know why? Because it was a mystery from the beginning that Christ revealed through his people. You've been not only included in the salvation of God, but in the empowerment that was always destined for Israel. We participate in it together as a seal for eternity. So the book of Chronicles, it begins with Adam, and you're going to see the emphasis in the genealogical record Because it emphasizes those to whom the promise was given. Those who would be the first to hope in Christ. It was a mystery 
that anybody else would be included in that. It is not a mystery, does not require a sowed from God to understand that it is the promise of Israel. Mm. And you'll know by the end of Chronicles and the end even of tonight, it's a promise that still stands. But we wanted to do some things that were fun first. Justin, work us through some external sources that the chronicler had that you don't have. So as we're reading the book of Chronicles uh, through these next coming weeks, we're going to notice there's some uh, references here by the chronicler of books that we don't have. So in 1 Chronicles 27, 24, we find there's a book called the Annals of King David. We Does also, anybody have that in your Bible? No. Not even if you're Catholic, you don't. You know why? We don't have it. But the chronicler did. That's interesting, isn't it? Yeah. Now, why don't we have it? I don't know. I mean, God chose for us to not have it. But I sure am glad that he did. Amen. Because whatever he took from it was important enough that it's mentioned in the Bible. Next, in 2 Chronicles 35, we see the book of the kings of Israel and Judah. Also, in 2 Chronicles 25, there is another book called the book of the kings of Judah and Israel. Don't make the mistake of thinking those are the same books. If we said we're going to speak to you and write a book about America's war with Vietnam, and then you heard another title about Vietnam's war with America... While we're talking about the same subject matter, it's clearly from different perspectives. We move on from there to 1 Chronicles 9. You see the book of the kings of Israel. In 2 Chronicles 33, there is the annals of the kings of Israel. In 1 Chronicles 29, 29 through 30, there are several different works listed. There's the records of Samuel the seer. Who would like to have a copy of that? I would. The records of Nathan the prophet. And the records of Gad the seer. I bet they were probably housed in a school of prophets that was built by Samuel the seer, weren't they? We also have in 2 Chronicles 9, 29 through 30, several several other works. There's the records of Nathan the prophet. There is the prophecy of Ahijah the Shilonite. And there is a book that contains the visions of Edo the seer concerning Jeroboam son of Nebat. Yeah. It's nice that the Lord recorded for us the things that he needs us to know. But it's also nice that the chronicler had records we don't have. Because he took from them the things that you need to know. Amen. Look, I'd like to go through a very rough outline of what's going to be covered tonight. You could call this, uh, not not necessarily tonight, what we're going to see when we're studying the book. We could call this an overview of Chronicles. In chapters 1 through 9, it is genealogical records. I know when you read Chronicles, you took your time to read every word. But tonight, we're going to emphasize the concepts that those genealogies are driving you to, and I think you'll come to inescapable conclusions. Because immediately after the genealogies, what is number 2 up there? Somebody read it out loud. Wow, do you think maybe the genealogies were taking us from Adam to the reign of David for a reason? And then from David in 2 Chronicles 1 through 9, we go through the reign of Solomon. And then in 2 Chronicles 10, 
to, to chapter 36, every single king that we spend any significant time on is a son of David. And what book comes immediately after 2 Chronicles, the 36th chapter? <laughs> yeah, and how does Matthew speak about Jesus? Yeah, how about that? It's almost like there's a design to this. When you remember that the book that comes before Matthew in the canon picks up on the subject matter of the chronicler, it, it adds a continuity that you miss if you are studying it out of order. This next biblical timeline, we want you to pay attention to the orange and red sections. We're only doing this because this is the time periods that we're discussing. We're looking roughly between David's reign and the Babylonian captivity. Do y'all see that on the screen? Yes. That gives you some perspective how far we are from Moses when the law was given. And it gives you some perspective of how far we still have to go to get to Hasmoneans or the Romans or Jesus. We want you to be able to place it in history that will help you with your understanding. Since this time period is dealing with successive kings of either the northern or southern kingdom, it is referred to as the monarchy period. You guys know what a monarchy period is? We're speaking about a succession. There are some things that are really special about this. Uh, I don't mind teasing you just a little bit. We're, we're going to get to it. The monarchy that you see displayed here is different than almost any other that you will read about, not just in scripture, but in history globally. The monarchy that is chronicled in Chronicles is unique. Let's take a minute to talk about 1st and 2nd Samuel before we get there, and 1st and 2nd Kings, and the overlap with 1st and 2nd Chronicles. Let's get to this next slide and we'll walk through this together. Okay, so this is our monarchy period. We have three sets of books that cover it. You notice up here, we have Samuel listed down here at the bottom, we have Kings listed, and they have periods that cover the exact same concept and other areas that they do not overlap at all. So for instance, 1 Samuel starts at the birth of Samuel. And it goes all the way up to the reign of David, but does not get to go into the lifetime of Solomon. Kings, however, picks up exactly with Solomon and goes all the way up to the captivity. Chronicles is a little bit unique in that it comes just after Samuel's birth but in what is going on in Israel just before David reigns. And then it covers predominantly the southern kingdoms of Judah. We mentioned to you earlier it's from a priestly or religious perspective. First and second kings tends to go cover the political differences bouncing back and forth between two kings. Chronicles, whoever was writing it, decided that what you needed the emphasis to be on was specifically the southern kingdom of Judah and the Davidic line. He didn't waste his time covering the sins of the kings of Israel. Can somebody be excited about the idea that a man devoted his life to just looking at the son of David and just not worrying about the rest of the politicians? When you're looking at this outline, notice that Elijah is covered in 1 Kings and Elisha is covered in 2 Kings. During that time where that book is concerned with warning the soul about what causes captivity, we include every error on either side. But this is not the purpose of Chronicles. No. The purpose of Chronicles is how do you live faithfully in a historic context? And I would suggest to you that the nine chapters of genealogy 
are a reminder for you to remember the promises that you've been given as a people and that they extended from Adam all the way to post-captivity time. And that the very next thing that happens in your inspired word of God is Matthew or Luke pick up with those same genealogies and say, I want you to know a son of David is here. Now you see him as the savior of the world. But that would have been a mystery to the chronicler. What he would see him as is the savior of a beaten and battered people that were found in the desert and he gave them his word. See, that was true for them before it can be true for you. You were grafted into that idea. You do not replace that idea. We want to go over for you a little bit of the content that you're going to see in these chapters. We're just doing our very best to give you a broad view so that as we go through this, you can place it in your timelines. So the book of the first book of Chronicles, tonight we're going to cover chapters 1 through 9. These chapters deal with the building of the house of God, the building of the house of Yahweh, Yehovah. Chapters 1 through 9 starts with Israel's main genealogy. So every main genealogy you've seen in previous chapters, you're going to see Genesis mirrored into these genealogies. It goes from Adam to Jacob, then from Jacob goes to David, then David all the way to Zedekiah. And then from Zedekiah, it explains the tribal allotments. Now, Judah is going to pick up with the 10th chapter. But why do we say that genealogies have to do with building the house of Yahweh? Because that's ultimately where this book arrives at. But he was also building his house in the people listed in the genealogy. It's always been twofold. That didn't begin in the Newer Testament with you. 10 through 29 are going to cover David's reign at Jerusalem. Again, Chronicles is slightly different in that the emphasis is not on the time that he was in Hebron. It is not on the time that he was running from Saul. It is about the right way to live and where the son of David is ruling and reigning in Jerusalem. So it'll focus on and cover concepts like what the anointed of the Lord looks like, the ark of the Lord, the very covenant of the Lord and his fulfillment and increasing measure inside of Israel. And in a really beautiful way, the temple of the Lord. Some of our favorite passages come out of this section of Chronicles as it's lending towards where Solomon is going to see it established. But this lays the groundwork for it when we have a righteous king reigning in Israel. Now, because the Jews are not dispensational, First and Second Chronicles is a singular book. We have to speak about it as two books because that's how it is in your Bible. At the end of First Chronicles, which is still the middle of the whole book, Chronicles, we arrive at the temple of the Lord, as Judah has said. As Second Chronicles picks up, we have an anointed son of David ruling the known world in that temple. Okay? You could describe Second Chronicles as the temple versus the throne. We start off with the temple and the throne working in connection with each other in Solomon. But it doesn't stay that way long. There begins to be a division between what God wants done and what the king is doing. The first 40 years of Solomon's reign are in Second Chronicles chapters 1 through 9. 
So they go over the early establishment of his kingdom. You get things like 12 governors that are ruling, which is pretty neat because there are 12 thrones they sat on. You get the physical building of the temple and you get all of his glory. Now, who is his? (laughs) Both Solomon and the Lord, because the throne and the temple were working in conjunction. As soon as they depart, then it only becomes about Solomon's glory. And there's an entire book written so that you understand that's all vanity. It matters nothing at all. That takes us to chapter 10. In chapters 10 through 36, we start to see Judah's history into exile. Now, remember, this is all about Judah's history. This has nothing to do with the northern 10 tribes. So we see in chapter 10, after Solomon's death, the division of the kingdom. We see the 20 kings of Judah, and it's tracing out David's lineage only straight throughout the book. Then we end up in the deportation to Babylon. And that's important because, as we said in the beginning, the purpose of this work is to show you how to live faithfully in the the context of history. This is showing how to live in light of the promise coming from an exile state and how to walk into that promise and what God restores later on. Check this out. We have a slide for you because I know you've all already uh, digested this information and it's very clear in your mind. We appreciate this slide. some of these things. This is extraordinary. So in the summary of the two kingdoms, I have the northern kingdom that is Israel, that is a collection of tribes that have divided themselves from Jerusalem. They have 19 kings that reigned 250 years. Seven different dynasties in How many? the northern kingdom. How many? That's not a good number in this case. When you consider those seven, that means that we've had seven breaks in the chain. Where we've had a father, and then a son rises up, and a son gets assassinated six months into his reign, a year into his reign. And some other family is constantly having to take over. The Assyrian captivity happens in 721 B.C., and there is no recorded return in the same way that we see with Babylon. The southern kingdom, however, has 20 kings reigning over 370 years. Wow. Wow. 20 kings that were one dynasty. Consider Roman history for a moment. Consider Greek history for a moment. Even empires that have stood for hundreds, up to a thousand years. There are a few that have done that. You do not find 20 kings in a row that were a father and a son, that were in the same lineage. It was because they were the lineage of the Davidic king. They're unique in all of history, as flawed as they might be. God made a promise to David, and he kept it alive. He kept it alive over and over again and breathed life into it as much as was needed. And even to the extent when we reach the Babylonian captivity in 606, he brings them back, and restoration was always the purpose. See, this is the primary background of the dynasty of the king who is coming to rule the earth. A contiguous line of God's promise that is constantly being revived, though it looks like it's dead. Now, when you're thinking about that, you, you might miss its implication. If for 370 years, only one family had the right to rule according to God, and it was an eternal promise that you could trace through nine chapters of genealogy, and then a son that fits both through his father and his mother, wow. that description comes and he's the king of Israel. Would you immediately go, he's the king of an American, but not an Israeli? 
Of course you would not. It was one dynasty. One the entire time. The reason the northern tribes were never reinstated as a political entity is they did not have the dynasty that descended from God. They had dynasties, but they did not have the dynasty. This backdrop, this primary background, as the slide says, of a king who is coming to rule, this serves as a preface. Somebody say preface. Preface. To the book of Matthew and the Newer Testament as a whole. It is why Jesus is referred to as the son of David. That is not just one of his various titles so that a Jew might find some interest in him. It is his primary title from which all other titles extend. Okay? To understand this, we are now going to get into the subject matter of First Chronicles and the first chapter. Because in addition to Adam... There are 10 generations listed in the first few verses. We want to show you those. Wow, that's very small. (laughs) Okay. Yeah, it's no problem. So you will have these in your notes as we do. And uh, Justin, why don't you start to tell me some of the definitions. By the way, what is on this slide are the sources of the definitions. Don't you hate it when a teacher tells you something means something, but you can't verify it? (laughs) What we did is we put three sources for every definition that we have here. So reading in 1 Chronicles 1, you see that there is Adam, Seth, Enosh, Kenan, Mahalalel, Jared, Enoch, Methuselah, Lamech, and Noah. Now it sounds just like a random genealogy, right? Well, listen to what their names mean in Hebrew. Adam means man. Seth means granted, appointed, or compensated. Enosh means mortal. Kenan means possessor or purchaser. Mahalalel, the praise of God, blessed of God, and God shines forth. Jared means coming down or descending. Enoch, initiating, teaching, or dedicating. Methuselah means his death brings or sends. Lamech means strong, vigorous, or powerful. And Noah means comfort, rest, and peace. Now listen to this as it's all put together. Man granted, appointed, and compensated mortality, possessed or purchased the praise of God, blessed of God, or God shining forth, coming down and descending, and initiating, teaching, dedicating, and his death brings or sends strong, Vigorous or powerful, comfort, rest, or peace. Come on, come on, tell me that wasn't inspired and written by the breath of God. Do you guys have the next uh, slide, the one with Hebrew on it? Okay. I want you to see this one if you don't mind. I just wanted you to see the actual Hebrew words and another scholar's work right beside ours so that you don't think that we uh, are esoteric or idiosyncratic in our interpretation. (laughs) What you can see is that many people have come to this conclusion. Now, when you're looking at this, the first 10 generations tell the story of Jesus that would play out through the centuries. So are genealogies important? Yes. Yes. Are they accurate historically? Yes. Do they have an actual meaning in the text where they're at? Yes. Might there be other meanings behind them as well? Of course. Now ask yourself, is it conceivable to you 
that this text was manipulated by the Jewish people who preserved it and their rabbis so that they could present Jesus in the first ten generations of mankind? No, they would have no interest in doing such a thing. These are evidences that this was always God's plan. It was his plan from the beginning, and I believe the chronicler understood that, which is why he starts with Adam and brings us all the way up to David in these genealogies. Now, Chronicles doesn't stop there. It goes on to describe Noah's descendants. We have a map, and Judah, you're somewhat familiar with that map, aren't you? Does that map look familiar to anyone else in the room? Yes. Oh, yeah. So this is a representation of the table of nations. This is the sons that came from Noah and the areas that we know from the Bible that they settled. You see what in the very center of the screen is in a rectangular box? That's called Israel. And it's the center of the world's map. No matter what passage you look at, whether you're looking at a genealogy, you're looking at a land map, Israel is always the center of the show. And there are areas all around here that the descendants of Noah settled in. This is meant to paint a picture for us as we continue. The king of kings has always been working in a very specific land with a very specific people and had a specific plan. Nothing has changed. And he is constantly honing the world back in on his people and his place. If you ever see a passage in the Bible that says the north, we're not speaking about Canada. (laughs) Because Canada is not north of the apple of God's eye. We are speaking about the descendants of Japheth that settled in Turkey south of the Black Sea. If you ever see in the Bible a direction south We are not talking about our Hispanic brothers. We are talking about the descendants of Ham that were to the south of Israel, like Mizraim. If you ever see in the Bible the direction like east, we are not talking about the east coast of the United States. This is the biblical world. And the more familiar you get with this, the more you'll understand the text when you look into it, The chronicler starts with Adam and moves to Noah so you will see how the promise proliferates in the world. But he only goes so far. I want to show you the next table. It's almost identical to Genesis 10. What we've done is we've taken the genealogical record that none of you want to read out loud and we've put it on a screen for you to see. The descendants of Japheth are listed. The descendants of Ham are listed. The descendants of Shem are listed. Just like in Genesis, this is a funneling effect so that you can get to one people group. He's showing you how every nation in the world came in to be so that you can understand one nation in the world. There are 14 nations that come from Japheth. There are 30 nations that come from Ham. There are 26 that come from Shem. Just like the Genesis account, the chronicler is funneling you into one major focus, the descendants of Abraham. One moment. When you're hearing this, do the math for just a moment. We're speaking about a table of 70. 
Many of you have heard about Exodus 15, 27. I know Pastor Eric Treister knows exactly what we're talking about when you hear that. See, there is a pattern that is throughout the word, that there is a certain number of nations and that there is a representation that would be raised up to feed them. When we're speaking about palm trees and we're speaking about springs out of Exodus 15, God's design was always that through his people and Gentile graftings, that he had appointed just the right number, that there would be 12 that would go out and reach this biblical world map that is the 70 nations. See, this is not just an LCM focus. This is not just a Stevens or a Piro or Sutherland's focus. This is the focus that God has had since Genesis. It has never changed. It is unyielding. From the creation of the world, this was his pattern and his design, and you get to participate in it. If you think through this subject, uh, you've received a lot of teaching on it already, so we're not going to do it. But the 12 uh, sons of Jacob, when they went into Egypt, how many were they? 70. 70. There is a relationship between the one nation that starts with 12 pillars and the 70 nations of the world. Jesus chose 12 disciples at first and sent them to the lost house of Israel, and then he chose 70 and didn't give them a restriction that they couldn't go outside of Israel. We're not going to teach on those things now. Are you impressed with our graphs? (laughs) The chronicler didn't have those graphs. But I don't feel bad because he had books also that I don't have. (laughs) Having said this, everything that he writes down, do you know where you can get it from so far? The first 12 chapters of Genesis, he's telling exactly the same story, but he's bringing it to a laser focus that lands on David. And he's doing that for a very specific reason. The world's hope lies in the Davidic covenant. It lies in it. But before it would ever be the world's hope, it was the hope of Israel. Right after explaining all of the nations, the chronicler and the writer of Genesis, Moshe, They come to the same conclusion. Now that we've set the stage for the whole world, let's talk about what we really want to talk about, Abraham. So if you're following along, or if you read 1 Chronicles last week, you would notice that we get all the way from Adam, and then we go to Noah, and it broadens. Then it goes laser-focused to Shem. Then it goes to Abraham. But what does it do after Abraham? It broadens again. In Chronicles, it kind of mirrors Genesis in the sense that there are some genealogies listed of Abraham's descendants. So here it's listed out of Sarah. We have Isaac. Esau is born of Jacob. It's interesting to note, Esau and Jacob were at war in the womb. Everywhere else you see Esau or Esau's descendants, what are they known as? Edomites. Edomites. Or in the New Testament, Edomians. And they are always at war with the people of God. You also see through Hagar, Ishmael's line. Through Ishmael's line, we get all the way down through these people. I can't... Twelve of them. Can't, uh, there's twelve tribes that come from Ishmael. And one thing that's interesting about this twelve tribe, what is that word you see in parentheses right there on the top right corner? Arab. Arabs. You see, in Hebrew, that word Arab is Erev. You know what that word means? Mixed. That word means mixed. It's interesting to note. I want you to catch this for a second. It's interesting to note. That only one line, even in the expansion and the narrowing of the genealogies, only one line remained unmixed because they are a line that the promises were given to. Now that's better than you you think that it is. 
There are a lot of people in the world that claim to descend from Ishmael. But it's really hard to know if you descend from Ishmael because Ishmael's daughter, daughters married Esau. It's really hard to know if you descend from Ishmael because also Keturah's children mixed with Ishmael. The word Arab is essentially a catch-all for everybody who could have been in the family, who should have been in the family, but got so mixed that they do not carry the specific genetic promise. Only one line ever did that. And the chronicler lists these people because he wants you to understand that. And the other reason that he lists them is they are present-day enemies when he is writing... And he knows that they will be enemies again in the future. Catch that for a second. His people, the recipients of his promise, have remained unmixed. That means his promise will never fail. That means his promise will come to fulfillment. His people have remained so unmixed that apparently today you can take DNA tests to find out if you're part of those people. Ask me how I know. (laughs) Justin is 100% goy. I can have bacon, y'all. Now, there's something interesting we want to show you here. Why does Genesis and why does 1 Chronicles list these peoples, list the unmixed line, and then list the genealogies of the enemies of God? Why does the chronologies do that? It's an interesting question, isn't it? Genesis 36 lists the Edomites. So does 1 Chronicles. It lists the generation of the Edomites. I think, possibly... The reason that these enemies... (laughs) Absolutely. That was sarcasm. I think the reason that these enemies are included is that in the time of the chronicler, they were geographically present as a danger, but there's something you need to know about these enemies. Additionally, the Spirit is pointing out the eschatological significance of the role they will play. He is chronicling these enemies because he is writing right here. Hey, remember his promises are not yet fulfilled. Come on. His How promises- could he know something like that, Justin? Who had come a couple centuries before him that said that was true? You might want to read in your spare time Isaiah 63, talking about a man coming from Basra with his garments dripped in blood, conquering the Edomites, making them his possession. Or you could read Isaiah 25. Where the Savior returns, wipes away death, and grinds Edom's face in excrement like a swimmer swimming through water. See, there's a reason these enemies are listed, and that's to let you know, and it's to let the people there know that God's promises still will happen and have yet to be fulfilled. That's what we're seeing as we're reading these genealogies. So why genealogies in the Bible? Why these groupings of genealogies? Is it all just some mystical cryptoanalysis? The author is driving you to specific promises that were made to specific people, and he made them in specific places, and he wanted a record that could not be contested so that everybody would know who they would come to and what would happen. We're going to get into that more as we go into chapter 2. Now, surprise, you've covered almost all of chapter 1 with these charts. But before we do that, we want to have a little more fun with the genealogies. Saints, can anybody in English think about what the root of the word genealogy is? 
when we think about genes and we've been preaching about thousand generations, we are slowly, ineptly discovering Hebrew concepts that have been there from the very beginning, that are worked throughout their culture. Think about this slide for a moment. This is the first appearances of the word toledo. In Genesis 2 through 4, we have the earth and the original man. This word appears here. In Genesis 5.1, we have a fallen man. In Genesis 6.9, we have a redeemed man. In Genesis 10, we have the nations. In Genesis 11, we have the Semitic peoples and the one life. In Genesis 25, we have Ishmael and Isaac. We have that one family that God is forming. In Genesis 36, we have Esau and Jacob, or Israel. And one nation is narrowed out and established. See, that word generations, this is the same kind of concept that we're thinking about with genealogies. It's first seven occurrences inside Genesis are explaining that there is a problem, that something has been fallen, but redemption is coming. The nations are going to be redeemed, but it's going to happen through a very specific people, the Semitic peoples, descendants of Shem. But more than that, than all of the Shemites, there is a very specific family that it's going to come through. More than just that family, there was one nation that would be birthed. That is the sons of Jacob. Those 12 that were raised up outside in a world that was fallen, that needed to be redeemed, that was being saved, and yet at the very same time was filled with chaos. Justin's about to take us through 30 generations, but before he does that, I want to introduce you to a concept. The earth itself has toliodot, generation. The earth itself has men on it that also have toliodot, generations. The problem is those generations were fallen. In other words, the account of genealogies are telling you the story of both the earth and man. But in Genesis 6, we're introduced to a man that was not fallen in the same way that everybody else was. The problem is, from that man comes many nations, so it's hard again to identify who is the promised one. So it narrows back down to the Semitic peoples. But as the Semitic peoples expand, kind of like expansions and contractions giving birth, the genealogies are giving birth to an idea specifically that out of all Semitic peoples, who is the one man on the earth that was called a friend of God? Abraham. But Abraham had many children. Who out of all of Abraham's children is the one genealogy through whom the promise would come? Ishmael. I'm sorry, Isaac. I said it exactly wrong. Out of all of the descendants of Isaac, who is the one people group. See, this is how genealogies work, and that is how the chronicler is using them. So that from Adam all the way up to his time, you could see how God was saving the world, building his family dynasty, and building the temple itself, and the two would become one. But it was still a genetic promise and a mystery that anybody outside of that gene pool could be brought into it. While we were studying for this lesson, we looked at different books of the Bible that included genealogies. There's somewhere around 15 to 20 books, as Judah noted, that have genealogies in them. Did you say the Bible is fascinated with genealogies? You want to know something interesting about all those genealogies? 
They're all the same. It's, <laughs> I know it sounds simple, but think about that. They are all the same. It's like the entire Bible is pointing to one singular focus and what those genealogies would result in. Amen. Before we move on to Second, uh, First Chronicles 2, I want to show you a little bit more about genealogies. Let's put that next slide on the screen. 30 generations. There you go. Amen. In Genesis, we see that there are 30 generations listed. The first, Genesis 5, we go from Adam to Noah. Then in Genesis 11, from Shem to Abraham. Then in Ruth, we go from Isaac to Boaz. And all of those are consecutive. It's interesting to know that there are 10 generations, 10 generations, 10 generations. Do you see that? There's some correlation there between the person who started that generation and who ended it. God used Adam to start the human race. He used Shem in the next genealogy to start the Semitic people. And he used Isaac to start the Messianic line of the faithful. You want to know something about those redeemers? He had... Abraham had to redeem the Semitic people through faith. Sorry, Noah had to redeem the human race. Abraham had to redeem the Semitic people. And Boaz had to redeem the Messianic line. So you have the peoples of the earth. You have the Messianic line. And then you, sorry, you have the people of God and you have the Messianic line. Always starting with the creator of it, the beginner, and and going on to the redeemer. So The, the chronicler evidently understood how God had worked through generations to preserve the specific promise made to specific peoples. He seems to be encouraging his audience with one message, because remember, he's writing after an Assyrian captivity, after a Babylonian captivity, and his work ends with the promise to rebuild the temple, and the chronicler is probably Ezra, and what is his one message? Our promise still stands. It's made it from Adam till now, and it still stands. Why does Matthew pick up that way? He's showing you how the promise still stands. Why does Luke pick up that way? He's showing you the promise is not gone just because people have been unfaithful. That's the background to the New Testament. Now we're going to go to the second chapter and cover those genealogies. Are y'all with us? Are y'all okay? Saints, on that subject, just consider for a moment. We preach so many times about the reality of something that we have not yet received, but the way in which we live it. Each of those ten generations that we just covered a minute ago, those of you who are Bible scholars will know how many horrific events transpired between the two men. This is a book that is from the perspective of someone who sees the end to the beginning, just like Christ. We ought to be able to stir up hope inside of ourselves tonight. While we're reading things from a historical perspective, we're learning from it, we're growing from it. This was written for you. This was written for those who would believe and you to be able to understand that God can give a man a purpose. He can give him a calling and a function that looks like it is not going to come to pass. In fact, right before we get to the 10th man, it looks like it's entirely gone. Consider the state of Ruth right before she fell in love with Boaz. See, that message of hope is interlaced everywhere in here. Now, as Judah is about to go through this next slide, remember that the first chapter of Chronicles, it starts with Adam. What does your heading say in your Bible above the second chapter of Chronicles? 
Man, it's almost like all of those genealogies were to get you to focus on one man who made one family who is now one nation that still has a promise. I'm going to read to you the names of those 12 sons, and then we're going to read the things that their names mean. Hold on to the idea of that message of hope that will come about. By the way, this is just their birth order. We have Reuben. We have Simeon. We have Levi. We have Judah. We have Dan, Naphtali, Gad, Asher, Issachar, Zebulun, Joseph, and Benjamin. In the same order, I'm going to read what their names mean. The Lord has seen my misery. We had see a son. The context of Reuben's life was that his mother was in misery, but then a son appeared. Simeon, one who hears, one who has heard my cry and actually listens. Levi, a joining, one who has added to me more than I had before, created a unity, a, a bond, even with the husband that I should have. With Judah, praise that comes before the Lord as a result of his work inside of our lives. With Dan, listen to my plea, my vindication. See, we have that son that is one who hears, a joining, a praise of God, who listens to your plea and vindicates you. Naphtali, there's still a struggle. We're still living in a time frame where we are wrestling with these things. With Gad, we have fortune, favor, and troops. Asher, that brings happiness or joy. Issachar, that is your reward. Zebulun, that is a precious gift, a dwelling place. Joseph means that he adds Benjamin, the son of the right hand. See, in these uh, lives of these men, there's a message going on all of the time. It's hard to read their lives and not see the horrible failures, the difficulties, the things that were happening. And yet God was speaking something through these generations that was always increasingly narrowing to a very specific point that would produce the reward, the happiness, the vindication that they needed. God was birthing it through their struggle. So... Not only is that happening, but after introducing Israel, what does 2 Chronicles 2, 2 move to immediately? Judah. Judah. How about that? The chronicler then moves on from the whole nation of Israel to the specific house of Judah. Why does he do that? Because he's narrowing you in on a very specific promise. I want to cover with you a strange prophecy. Is that okay? I put it in the King James because I know how much y'all love that. Makes it more strange. Can you imagine who, who got married in here most recently? Oh, my goodness. A couple young Stevens. So we're standing at their wedding. And somebody stands up and says, And let thy house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah, of the seed the Lord shall give Thereof, this young woman. Well, that might not mean anything here because people don't know the story of Judah, son Perez, and this young woman. But does anybody remember it in here? Yes, it involved visiting a prostitute. It involves some pretty unwholesome uh, bodily emissions. Is that what you would want given at your wedding, Gabe? No, probably not. You wouldn't see it that way, would you? But this was not a toast at a wedding. This was actually more like a prophecy. Because although there was unwholesomeness in that line, in fact, you got to love how King Jimmy says it, a bastard shall not enter into the congregation of the Lord. 
Even to his tenth generation shall he not enter into the congregation of the Lord. Deuteronomy 23.2. An illegitimate child, who King Jimmy called the bastard, could not <laughs> enter into the congregation of the Lord. That's a big problem if your family is supposed to produce the Messiah. For your people first and then later a mystery for the rest of the world. Which is why this prophecy is so intriguing. Because if you go from Perez in the line of Judah to Hezron to Ram to Amenadab to Nashon to Salmon, the seventh is Boaz. Boaz became a kinsman redeemer, but we still cannot have a king. We cannot have somebody who enters into the congregation of the Lord, especially to lead his people. So Boaz has a son, Obed. Obed has a son, Jesse, and Jesse's son is the tenth from the illegitimate birth, and now that curse has passed, and it's time for a king that can lead the congregation. Come on. Why is the chronicler going from Israel to Judah? He's leading us to David, and he is constantly encouraging us, whatever happened in the line, God is fixing it. Whatever happened, and there's many of them. We're picking a few. God will fix it. You know why this ought to encourage you? Well, get a DNA test, and you'll find out why this ought to encourage you. <laughs> Ancestry.com is blessing many people, and it's ruining many more lives. <laughs> because you're finding out how screwed up your family lineage is. God's able to keep track of it, though. Every time the specific promises to the specific people were in jeopardy, God resolved it through their generations. The genealogical records are a source of encouragement for those with eyes to see. And friends, Ezra, Ezra had eyes to see. Amen. So we're going to move forward into 1 Chronicles chapter 3. If you're there in your Bible, read those headers in 1 Chronicles chapter 3. What do they say? What's the next one? The kings of Judah and... That's pretty interesting, isn't it? Hey, I just, I need a little encouragement from y'all. We've been doing this an hour and 14 minutes. Is this an interesting way to go through the genealogies? Yes. Would you rather that we muddle through every name that you'll never remember again or be able to pronounce? We're trying to put it in a format that you understand what the original audience would have understood. There's something here in the third chapter that's pretty interesting. He's recording the sons of David, the royal line, and the kings of Judah. Now I want to show you a slide here. Matthew and Luke begin like chronicles with genealogies. Why do they do that? They were both aimed at reassuring the specific people of the promise that the promise was still intact. Yeah. But do you want to see one more time that the, that line was in jeopardy? This is pretty interesting. Most of you are aware that these genealogies are different, correct? Yeah. Matthew, what most people say is that Matthew would go through the paternal line and that Luke would go through the maternal line. I want to point something out to you. Matthew's genealogy starts all the way from Abraham and goes down to Solomon, David's son. Luke's genealogy starts all the way at Adam and then makes his way down to David, but they take different turns. Do you see that? Yes. Whose son of David is Matthew going through? Solomon. 
Luke chooses to go through another son of David, and that is Nathan. Now, why is that? I want somebody to open up their Bibles and read Jeremiah 22, verse 30. Who's going to read it? I'll do it. Get it. On your anniversary. <laughs> read it like you got a beard. We want to hear it in the front. Oh, I thought that was Nick. Yeah, get it, Nick. It's your anniversary, oh, you bro. Want me to get it? <laughs> yeah. Sure. This is what the Lord says. Record this man as if childless, a man who will not prosper in his lifetime. For none of his offspring will prosper. None will sit on the throne of David or rule anymore in Judah. That's right. Did y'all catch that? Read that one more time. I want this to be clear. Everybody listen to what Nick is reading here. This is what the Lord says. Record this man as if childless, a man who will not prosper in his lifetime, for none of his offspring will prosper. None will sit on the throne of David or rule anymore in Judah. But wait a second. I thought the throne of David was supposed to produce one who would reign on the throne. This is saying that there will be none through the house of David through a particular man named Jehoiakim that will not produce a Messiah. And that Jehoiakim was king over Judah. That Jehoiakim was so wicked, God said, no more children will he have, and he will never have a descendant that will reign on the throne. Well, guess what? There's something interesting with these genealogies here. Matthew traces the genealogy all the way from Solomon through Jehoiakim and down to Joseph, the adopted father of Jesus. Now, why does he do that? It's to show that legally Jesus was in line to the throne, but there's a problem. Through Jehoiakim, there could never be someone that reigns on the throne of David. You want to know what Luke does with Matthew or uh, Mary's genealogy? Luke goes through the son of Nathan, the son of David, and goes all the way around Jehoiakim, right back at Jesus, and says, guess what? Blood relation, Jesus is still related to David, and he's still a son of David, even though it avoids this curse. Do you see how the genealogies work to avoid... go? Go remind a Jew sometimes, show him that verse and say, how is that possible? It's because Jesus descended from blood, from David, through Mary's line, and descended legally from the Father. You see how the genealogies go through specific care to show that the promise is still intact and that Jesus is still the son of David who claims the right to the throne of God, through the throne of David. Now, ladies, we're not going to argue endlessly about this, but I kind of thought you would like this. You know whose blood Jesus did not have in his body? Joseph's. In fact, look up the Greek word there. Joseph was thought to be his father. The truth is, is he was given custodial care, but Jesus' genetics came through mom because Joseph played no part in that. So he bypasses that curse. Now, the reason we're doing this for you is to show you the genealogies are there for a reason. The overarching reason is that the genealogies narrow and point you to a specific people through whom the promises must come and that it was a mystery you could participate. If you look at 1 Chronicles chapter 4, the major subject matter is Judah and Simeon. We're continuing to talk about the family of God and the lines that are important. As you move to 1 Chronicles 5, we have an interesting note about Reuben. Would somebody just start to read 1 Chronicles 5 and Judah will explain it to us? 
the sons of Reuben, the firstborn of Israel. He was the firstborn, but he but his birthright was given to the sons of Joseph, the sons of Israel. Wow. That's 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 what we needed, brother. Chapter five covers Reuben, covers Gad, and it also covers the half tribe of Manasseh. There's an interesting principle at play in the word. We know from Deuteronomy that God instituted that the firstborn was to have very specific rights and a double inheritance. And yet, because he is the creator and the great designer, he has the right and the ability to invert that. We often will call it a bypass of the firstborn principle. To give you a few examples, Cain was born before Seth, but Seth was greater in prominence because of his righteous actions. See, Shem also bypassed Japheth. Isaac bypassed Ishmael. Jacob bypassed Esau. Judah bypassed Joseph and Reuben. Moses bypassed Aaron. And David bypassed every single one of his brothers. It's almost like there was a divine hand at work that was selecting the people that he wanted to carry his lineage onto. Like he had a specific goal in mind that he was accomplishing through our lives and their lives. He was able to work even within the birth order. And when necessary, he reordered it. See, the lion's share of the inheritance was given to Judah, but not uh, Joseph. Was given to Joseph, but not the anointed scepter. This is a unique passage in the Bible. You don't see anywhere else where it states this about these two men. Neither one of these two sons of Jacob were the firstborn. Reuben was. Reuben is the very first tribe that is mentioned in chapter five. Something about the way that they lived and the calling that was on their life, God wanted to bring to preeminence. The suffering servant is something that we see as an example of Christ in his relationship with Pharaoh. And that scepter that would eventually produce the Christ was spoken about Judah. He was working in the generations through men's sin and through men's successes to speak the message that he won accomplished. And 1 Chronicles 5 tells you about their stories. Now, while we're thinking of that, remember that the chronicler is writing after Joseph's descendants are no longer reigning. But he is acknowledging to the whole world, Joseph was blessed like the firstborn. He had more tribes under his control. He had more inheritance under his control. But God had always promised as far back as Genesis 49 that through the line of Judah and more specifically through the Davidic line would come the real blessing. Now that's kind of neat, isn't it? He's not avoiding any of the difficulties. He's actually explaining them so that people standing in a historical context of difficulty would go, oh, it doesn't matter what it looks like. It doesn't matter if everybody's saying we're replaced. It doesn't matter if it looks like we're not going to have a king. It doesn't matter. The promise still stands. It literally runs through our veins. Hey, 1 Chronicles chapter 6 goes into a genealogy of Levi. Now, I want to show you something because there are some real common misnomers. When we're talking about the tribal allotments, which these chapters are about, there are six cities in Israel that are uh, cities of refuge. They each had to have in them Levites. That meant that Levites were spread evenly throughout every tribe in Israel. Have you ever heard the idea that there were lost tribes? That because of the Assyrian captivity, we lost 10 tribes 
forever? Well, anywhere there were even some Levites, then there would be members of those so-called lost tribes that would honor the Lord in Jerusalem. The record bears this out, and I want to show it to you. As we go through the genealogies of the six northern tribes, the fact that the chronicler can still give these records means that the tribes weren't lost. Otherwise, how would he even know them? As you get into Chronicles 8, we have a genealogy of Benjamin. The chronicler is beginning to set up his introduction to Saul so that he can talk about David, but he makes a note as we get to chapter 9. In chapter 9, where we're dealing with leaders, priests, and Levites, somebody read 1 Chronicles 9, 3, and know this is taking place after the Assyrian captivity. It's taking place after the Babylonian captivity. Those from Judah, from Benjamin, and from Ephraim, and Manasseh who lived in Jerusalem. Wait, wait, wait. I must have misunderstood. How do we have people from Ephraim and people from Manasseh living in Jerusalem if the tribes were lost 200 years before? They were never lost. In fact, you can trace them all the way through the Newer Testament as well. This is a lie that has been propagated and propagated and propagated. But the chronicler knew it wasn't true, and I am so glad we have genealogies that show us there were always representatives from tribes like Ephraim and Manasseh that relocated to Jerusalem because when their nation was going to hell, a remnant didn't go with them. Yeah? Amen. Amen. Praise God. That takes us to something that we want to walk through with you, and uh, we're going to get to some really, really neat things. Are y'all still interested in what we're doing? Okay, we're going to put these on the screen for you. And uh, Justin, tell us what we're looking at. So we're going to give you a list of the listings of the 12 tribes and where they occur in the Bible. The 12 tribes are, are listed 20 times in the Bible in different orders, according to birth, mothers, numeration, encampments, blessing, geographies, etc., etc. Now, why would we do that after what we just said? There never stop being 12 tribes. Amen. There will never stop being 12 tribes. Our lists go from Genesis to Revelation because God will always cause there to be 12 tribes. And he doesn't have to redefine a Mexican as Ephraim to do it. He is very well aware of who he made the promise to. And it was a beautiful mystery that you could be included with them, but you will never be included without them. So in Genesis 29 through 35, we have the origin of these 12 tribes, and you see them listed in their natural order of Jacob's 12 sons. In 46, we see them as they are entering into Egypt. In 49, we see Jacob's prophetic blessing over them, and those 12 tribes receive their blessings. These are all times that all 12 tribes are listed. By the way, because Jacob adopts Joseph's sons, we have a kind of baker's dozen mm -hmm. with our 12. And he changes the order sometimes. Sometimes he does it geographically. Sometimes he does it in their birth order. And every time he does, if you define their names, it changes the story slightly. And it always has relevance to what's going on in the text around it. Like there is a message within the message. 
And I'll tell you something else. It's always a message of hope. Judah, tell us about Exodus and Numbers. In Exodus in chapter 1, we have the 12 tribes listed again. Obviously, Joseph is already there at this point in time. But we have the collective number being reunited, and the scripture makes it a point to illustrate it. Read the first chapter of Exodus, and they will name them name by name on purpose so that you know every single one of them and their descendants were a part of the story to come in the Tanakh. Hey, what is the book of Exodus called in Hebrew? Shemot. These are the names of people who went into a terrible situation. Why does he want you to know that he knows their names? Because he's going to bring every one of them out of that terrible situation. Friends, if you read your Bible, it will cure your theology. With that in mind, over the next few passages, we're going to see the names that he brought back out of Egypt. So in Numbers 1, we have the leaders of the 12 tribes listed, omitting specifically Levi. We also have a census that is counted, again, omitting Levi. They're often like a baker's dozen, and that can be explained in Genesis when you see Joseph's sons were blessed and counted as sons. Does anybody know why Levi would be omitted in a, a census? They weren't fighting men, so there's no reason to list them there. They're not allowed to go and fight. Does that make sense? Yeah. But, again, define it, and you will find out that it has relevance to the text around it. But you have to do that on your own time. Chapter 2, we have the order of the camp. And the only order given three times relates to the way that the tribal encampments are supposed to be surrounding God's presence. It's almost as if that he is trying to make it abundantly clear. Every member of my tribes, of my nation, will be surrounding my presence and it will be the example to the world. Yeah. Later we have offerings that are given. And each tribe had their own offering that was recorded. And we have uh, an order of their march. So when they're encamped, it looks a certain way. And then when they're setting out to move, it looks a certain way with all 12 tribes listed in their order. We have spies that are sent out. And later, and Levi is omitted yet again. And we have a second census before we get out of numbers. And again, Levi is omitted because he plays a different role, but they're all present. When we're dividing the land, the eastern tribes are omitted because those are the Transjordan tribes that already received their inheritance. They were stated. And then all the other sons, not one was left out, had their allotments given. Moving into Deuteronomy, in chapter 27, you see six tribes stand on one mountain, six tribes stand on another mountain, and they give blessings and curses. Those 12 tribes are listed together. Then in Deuteronomy 33... Moses gives a blessing to the 12 tribes, and yet Simeon is omitted. But don't feel bad about the tribe of Simeon because we will see him later. The order is geographical, and Benjamin is before Joseph in those orderings. When you get to the book of Joshua, all 12 tribes are mentioned between chapters 13 and 22. They're done in order with their allocation of territories in four groups to furnish cities, for four classes of priests. God wanted every tribe represented, and he wanted every tribe to have priests within those tribes. In Judges, in chapter 5, we see in the Song of Deborah that the tribes that participated in a battle that was both a physical and a spiritual one, that two kingdoms were clashing, trying to destroy God's people. 
And there are certain tribes that are omitted because of their lack of participation or their orientation during the battle. But again, God wanted to record each of his sons, each of his tribes, as they were engaging in a physical, tangible war and a spiritual war. They were fighting for the promise and inheritance that they were called to. In 1 Chronicles 2, 1 and 3 through 8, we see those genealogies, but Zebulun is omitted. And Dan is omitted in verse 7. We'll get back to that in a second. In chapter 12, we see the 27 officers under David, and it's listing the 12 tribes, but Gad and Asher are omitted in 1 Chronicles 27. You can always omit two and still come up with 12, but it changes the story, and it will always have significance to the text. You want to hear one of my favorites? Ezekiel chapter 48. One of the reasons this is my favorite is all 12 tribes are listed, and almost universally... Scholars put this in the millennial reign. In other words, there have always been 12 tribes. There always will be 12 tribes. There was never a time that God lost 10 of his children. On that note, in the book of Revelation, we have the sealing of 12,000 from the tribes. Only Dan is omitted. When you consider that God used his people to speak a message, even when just their names were being mentioned, He tailored the message that he wanted to be spoken while ensuring that a perfect representation of that 12 still existed. God has never let go of his family. He's never let go of his tribes. He's never let go of his inheritance. To the very last revelation that we have in the word of God, the 12 tribes are still there, still existing, and they will stand before his throne just as surely as every other tribe, every other language, every other nation will have a remnant that bow before him. He's not the kind that loses what he has taken hold of. Now, do you remember that I said everywhere that they're listed, it bears significance to the text around it? (laughs) In Revelation 7, when we're talking about those that are sealed, when we're talking about what is represented before his throne, what does Dan's name mean? Judgment. Judgment is omitted from the story because they've passed through it. Yeah, no, that was better than you acted like. Look, I don't know whether you realize it, but we were faced with teaching nine chapters of genealogy, and we have just gone through nine chapters. I want to share with you some things that you have learned. Uh, do we have these important questions? If we don't, I'll read them. Ah, oh, we do! Wow, amen. What was the position of the chronicler and chronicles in the canon? You have now learned that the chronicler was aiming at reassuring people that the promise still stood and he was after all of the captivities. Further, you have learned that the book of Chronicles is a preface to the Newer Testament. And the Newer Testament picks up in exactly the same way that Chronicles leaves off so that you see it as one contiguous work. I know you all knew that before you came in. What is the outline of the book? We covered this earlier. The first section that we have been looking at tonight, that you've been reading personally, it outlines the genealogies of the players of the story. We are setting up the scene, whether they're a friend or they're a foe, but this is the region. This is the specific people. This is their enemies, and this is what I'm going to do. The second thing that we learned in our overview was about the reign of David that is coming. 
This is 1 Chronicles 10 all the way up to 29. And this leads to the preparation for the reigning of Solomon that picks up in 2 Chronicles 1. That goes all the way through 9. And then we begin to learn about the other reigning kings in that monarchy that lasted for 20 successive seats. The next question is, why, oh why, oh why are there nine chapters of genealogies? I think we've already answered that question, haven't we? So we could see the promise of God going forward. Then we came to, my goodness, why are there Edomites listed? Why did we go through Ishmael's descendants? Why on earth are Keturah's children mentioned? Because the Bible identified the geographic and relative uh, relatives that did not support Israel in the time of its historical setting and it predicts that those very same nations will be who the Messiah crushes when he sets up his kingdom on the earth. In fact, it's kind of like, I don't know, the book of Revelation. Its writer, John, had read the genealogies in Chronicles. Wow, that brings us to, is this all just cryptoanalysis? Some kind of strange, mystical thing they're reading into the names? Or was it an intelligent design by the God of all creation who was able to raise up his sons to speak a specific message? See, nothing about this is just strange or mystical. It was their purpose. It was their function. In a kind of Hebrew culture, you're not just named John because... Your great-uncle was named John. It has a function that goes along with it. It's not just an analysis of the stars like an astrologer. It is generations that were meant to speak a message. The next major question we've answered is, why is the history of these kings so important? Now, I know what we do when we study the book of Kings, we study the book of Chronicles. We like to look at each king, and we like to find something that we can draw out and apply it in our own lives. Getting an overview of these kings, it is important because it shows the succession of the Davidic kings going right into the Davidic king that will reign forever. In fact, this book shows one dynasty reigned for 20 successive kingships, one family, without ever changing, and did it for 120 years longer than a kingdom that utilized seven That is the point of the book. There is a stone that the builders keep rejecting, but God will make it the capstone, and it's marvelous in our eyes. That was said about David in Psalm 118, and it was applied to Jesus on the day that he walked through the gates of the triumphal entry, which takes us to our seventh question. What relevance does Judah and the Davidic son have in the Newer Testament, your Newer Testament is completely worthless without Jesus being the Davidic son. Deuteronomy 13 makes this so clear that it's unreal, but that's not what we're going to do. We are at an hour and 38 minutes, but let's be honest. You're quarantined. It's Monday. You ain't got nothing to do. We want to close with an exhortation. Amen. We, we want you to zero in on some law prophets' writings about the specificity of this bloodline promise. What's gonna, wrong, Abby? 
I'm going to read to you Genesis 13, 15 through 17. All the land that you see, speaking to Abraham, I will give to you and your offspring. Not to Norwegians, not to anyone else, the offspring of Abraham. I will make your offspring like the dust of the earth, so that if anyone could count the dust, then your offspring could be counted. Go walk through the length and the breadth of the land, for I am giving it to you. There are two points that we want you to retain from this scripture. Was that the promise was given to Abraham and his offspring. And that it was tied to a very specific, very real, very tangible land, and he will fulfill that promise. We refer to that as the man, the land, and the plan. And all three are equally important. And you cannot separate any part of God's promise from those three things. If you do, you end up in something that, well, Ezra would not have accepted. That takes us to Jeremiah 33. We're going to be in Jeremiah 33 for a little bit. Yeah, you're all going to want to turn there. All right, everybody say, there when you are there. Let's start in verse 1. While Jeremiah was still confined in the courtyard of the guard, the word of the Lord came to him a second time. This is what the Lord says. He who made the earth, the Lord who formed it and established it, the Lord is his name. Call to me and I will answer you and tell you great and unsearchable things you do not know. Look, while this text forms the basis of a song that we used to sing, in fact, Miss Joe can kill this song if you ever get her to sing it. <laughs> Called Call Him Up. Today, very few Christians have engaged with the text in a way that considers who it was said to and why it was said. Come on. Jeremiah was writing from a prison in Israel. His nation was being taken into captivity. Consider the absurdity of singing this song without believing that there is a present hope for Israel. His nation was being destroyed when he was given this revelation that we're about to read. The setting is the beginning of the Babylonian captivity. God begins to deal with Jeremiah at the beginning of the judgment that comes on the nation so that he will still have hope through the judgment that they're going through that the bloodline promise still remains. Jeremiah 33, verse 4. For this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says about the houses in this city and the royal palaces of Judah that have been torn down to be used against the siege ramps and the sword. In the fight with the Babylonians, they will be filled with dead bodies of the men I will slay in my anger and my wrath. I will hide my face from the city because of all its wickedness. Somebody said that's scary. That's scary. But there's verse 6. Nevertheless. Come on, somebody say nevertheless. Nevertheless. Nevertheless, I will bring health and healing to it. I will heal my people. And I will let them enjoy abundant peace and security. Did you hear that dramatic shift? In the midst of siege ramps. In the midst of dead bodies. In the midst of the Lord's anger. He says, nevertheless, I will bring health and healing to it. The context for the passage and the song is that Israel was in terrible shape, but there's a promise of God. 
It should be impossible to ever hear that song or read this passage and maintain the idea that God is done with Israel. You need to tear nine chapters out of the book of Chronicles alone, not to mention the damage it does to Jeremiah. It should be impossible to think that God has replaced Israel. Let's pick up in verse 7, Justin. I will bring Judah and Israel back from captivity and will rebuild them as they were before. I will cleanse them from all the sin they have committed against me, and I will forgive all their sins and rebel of rebellion against me. Then this city will bring me renown, joy, praise, and honor before all nations on earth that hear of all the good things I do for it. And they will be in awe and will tremble at the abundant prosperity and peace I provide for it. I want you to notice that he doesn't say, I'll do this if they all become Christians. Because he knows that he's able to make them all Christians. There's not a condition in this at all. He places no condition on it of any kind. The next question is, has he ever done this? Some commentators will say that the regathering of Israel is the fulfillment. But I want you to hear the phrase. I will cleanse them from all the sin they have committed against me and will forgive all their sins of rebellion against me. Then this city will bring me renown, joy, praise, and honor before all nations on earth. Tell me that's happened. No, it's never happened. That hear of the good things that I do for it. And they will be in awe and tremble at the abundant prosperity and peace I provide for it. Can you really accept that this has ever happened in history? No. Because it hasn't. Not in the way that it was promised. No matter how bad it gets for Israel. Nevertheless, no matter what happens, this promise remains for Israel. There is still hope in Israel. The chronicler had the benefit of reading Jeremiah and he is starting all the way back at Adam and bringing them forward to show them the promise still stands and the book of Matthew understands that. The book of Luke understands that and Jesus is a continuation of the promise but it still has not been completely fulfilled. Look at verse 10, Justin. This is what the Lord says. You say about this place, it is a desolate waste without men or animals. Yet in the towns of Judah and the streets of Jerusalem that are deserted, inhabited by neither men nor animals, there will be heard once more the sounds of joy and gladness, the voices of bride and bridegroom, and the voices of those who bring thank offerings to the house of the Lord, saying, Give thanks to the Lord Almighty, for the Lord is good. His love endures forever. Look. I met a yeshiva student in 2004, and he pointed to this very passage. He said, weddings are taking place in Israel again. That's something that never happened before 1947. We may not be all the way back, but the flower of our redemption is budding. He said that he believes they're experiencing prophecy every day. And as much as I love that yeshiva student, you know what there is not standing in Jerusalem today? The temple, the house of the Lord, for them to bring their thank offerings into. This scripture was not fulfilled in the first century and is not fulfilled today. But it will be fulfilled. Amen. Interpreting this as an allegory is absurd. And it leads to the idea that a Mormon or a Muslim 
could be the fulfillment of this chapter. But it wasn't given to Joseph Smith, and it sure wasn't given to a pedophile prophet. Amen. It was given to Israel. Replacement theology, supersessionism, ignores nine chapters of the chronicler's promise being recounted. And it destroys the Peshat that is in the text. If Presbyterians or Baptists or some other group of believers could view themselves as spiritual Israel, then where would that ever stop? Couldn't Islam do the same? Couldn't Mormons do the same? Now, if that hasn't been convincing, listen carefully as Judah starts in verse 12. On a very practical note right now, while we're at 148, before we pick up, we've had lots of fruitful conversations under pastoral direction. We are people who are in love with the Word of God and the Spirit of God. All too often, good, well-meaning Christians will look at a situation and they will use a scripture to justify the opinion that they already have. Romans 13! As they so. (laughs) While all the while ignoring what the Peshat actually says. So I love you. I want to remind you, warn you this evening. You giving any one of us a so does not validate your opinion at all if it disagrees with any part of the Peshat. Listen to the Peshat in the following statements. 33 and verse 12. This is what the Lord Almighty says. In this place. Where? In this place. Desolate and without men or animals. In all its towns. There will be again. Be pastures for shepherds to rest their flocks. In the towns of the hill country, of the western foothills, and of the Negev. See, this is Israeli territory that is being described. In the territory of Benjamin, in the villages around Jerusalem, in the towns of Judah, flocks will again pass under the hand of the one who counts them, says the Lord. The days are becoming, declares the Lord, not a suggestion, a declaration. When I will fulfill the gracious promise I made to the house of Israel and to the house of Judah. In those days, and at that time, I will make a righteous branch sprout from David's line. Wait, where does it sprout from? Maybe that's why the chronicler spends nine chapters making sure you understand this whole story is about David's line. Maybe that's why Luke goes through such great detail to make sure you understand Jesus is of David's line. Maybe that's why Matthew does exactly the same thing. The promise for Israel still stands. That branch, that sprout from David's line. He will do what is just and right in the land. Where will he do it? In those days, Judah will be saved. And Jerusalem will live in safety. This is the name by which it will be called the Lord, our righteousness. But this is what the Lord says. David will never, say never, saints. Never! Fail to have a man to sit on the throne of the house of Israel. Nor will the priests who are Levites ever fail to have a man to stand before me continually. To offer burnt offerings, to burn grain offerings, and to present sacrifices in the temple. The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. This is what the Lord says. If you can break my covenant with the day and my covenant with the night so that the day and the night no longer come at their appointed time. Then, then my covenant with David, my servant, and my covenant with the Levites, who are priests ministering before me, can be broken. And David will no longer have a descendant to reign on his throne. Saints, this is Holy Ghost sarcasm. 
He's saying, if you can break my covenant with the night and the day, with the stellar realm, if you can rearrange it all, then maybe I would consider changing my plans for the household of David. But that's not going to happen. Consider some points from the passage we've read. Because as much as I love that young Jewish yeshiva student, and he may have been right that the flower is beginning to bud, there is certainly not a descendant of David on the throne in Israel right now. The throne that is at the right hand of God is not in Israel right now. But our Bible tells us it will be. Jerusalem is anything but in safety. For God's sake, they're in quarantine right now. You have to go through metal detectors just to walk to the hotel. The city will be, but is not right now, called the Lord our righteousness. It will be called that. But I can assure you that is not how Saudi Arabia refers to Israel right now. <laughs> For this promise to be fulfilled, Jesus will have to return. Let's pick up Justin in verse 22. I will make the descendants of David my servant and the Levites who minister before me as countless as the stars of the sky and as measureless as the sand on the seashore. The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. Have you not noticed that these people are saying, the Lord has rejected the two kingdoms he chose? Never heard that before. Mm. So they despise my people and no longer regard them as a nation. This is what the Lord says. If I have not established my covenant with the day and night and the fixed laws of heaven and earth, then I will reject the descendants of Jacob and David, my servant, and will not choose one of his sons to rule over the descendants of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, for I will restore their fortunes and have compassion on them. This should be the death nail. Period. For anyone who thinks that physical descendants of Israel, that we spent nine chapters <laughs> reviewing, and that Matthew picks up with, and that Luke picks up with, are not going to receive these promises. Yeah, exactly. They are. One of his sons to rule over the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob cannot be reinterpreted to mean Gentile believers alone. You are grafted into that promise yeah. with them, but not without them. On, the scripture defeats this lie in advance. If there is day, if there is night, and then if there is an earth, then his promise still stands to Israel. This promise is subsequent to the new covenant that is mentioned in Jeremiah 31. Wow. In other words, if this scripture no longer applies, then go ahead and tear out Jeremiah 31 as well, because in my recollection of numbering, even in school in Louisiana, chapter 33 comes after chapter 31. If I know that chapter 31 is trustworthy, then I refuse to see chapter 33 is not trustworthy. Justin, would you take us to Psalm 89? Open your Bibles to Psalm 89, verse 31 through 37. If you haven't caught it, as is our custom, we're going law, prophets, writing, and guess what's coming after the writings? New Testament. New Testament. 
And we're going to finish this in a normal foundations time. Everybody in Psalm 89:31? This is about the Davidic line. In verse 31, it says, If they violate my decrees and fail to keep my commands. Man, what's about to happen next? I will punish their sin with the rod, their iniquity with flogging. Ouch. That hurts. You know, most replacement theology, it centers around the fact that Israel must have done something wrong. Therefore, they cannot receive the promise they've been given. And it goes to somebody else. Listen to what the next verse says. But I will not take my love from him, nor will I ever betray my faithfulness. Come on. I will not violate my covenant or alter what my lips have uttered. You see where this is an issue of what God's lips have uttered? God will not go back on his word. And that is what the book of Chronicles is telling us. Those genealogies are listed to show that he will not go back on what he's spoken in Genesis, what he's spoken in Nehemiah. He will not violate what his lips have uttered. This is a matter of him keeping his word. Once for all, I have sworn in my, by my holiness, and I will not lie to David, that his line will continue forever and his throne endure before me like the sun. It will be established forever like the moon, the faithful witness in the sky. What we see in Chronicles is we see the Davidic line go through all kinds of trials. It lists those Davidic kings, but all those Davidic kings were not perfect. Many of them sinned. But the end message of these books pointing into Matthew is to show that God will not fail his Davidic line. And guess what? There is a son of David coming to rule on the throne. And it may appear in the moment that he's not ruling yet. But the truth is the consistency of scripture points to the fact that he will return one day and settle these fulfillments. Are y'all ready to get into the Newer Testament? Yes. Remember, the chronicler had Genesis. The chronicler had Jeremiah chapter 33. And the chronicler also had the Psalms, specifically Psalm 89. And a bunch of books you don't have. (laughs) And the chronicler detailed with great uh, accuracy and precision from Adam all the way through to David so that the Newer Testament can pick up where it does. Luke, the doctor, who is known for very specific, linear writings of the gospel. You know what book he had? Chronicles. Let's go to Luke 1 and 31. Actually, pick up in verse 32 together. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. Woo! He's going to be called the Son of the Most High. We can debate divinity all that you would like, but he is called the Son of the Most High for a very good reason. The Lord will give him the throne of his father, David. See, he's not going to inherit a throne that is off in a galaxy far, far away. He's not inheriting a throne that is just up in heaven. He's inheriting a very specific throne. He is a spotless, sinless son of God. And his father is? Imagine that for just a moment. He's the son of the Most High, and yet he's also the son of David. How intrinsically linked is the name of David 
to God in and of themselves. So to tarnish the name of David is like you spitting in God's face. You should think about that every time you see a star of David. God attached his name to David so intrinsically that they're interchangeable in this passage. Before Judah reads verse 33, let's condense and recap a serious truth bomb. (laughs) Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father. David did not rule from the right hand of the Father. David ruled from a physical throne in Israel. And while Jesus is the son of the Father, he still must reign on David's throne. And now you're going to hear who he reigns over on David's throne. Asad, you got a Bible open? Yes. Why don't you read verse 33 for me? Lion King. Let the Lion King read it. <laughs> he will reign over the house of Jacob. Who? Who's he going to reign over? His kingdom will never end. See, we're speaking about the God of all the earth, but there is a very specific father that he has, a very specific throne that he has, and he will reign over that house of Jacob, and it will never end. This fulfillment of Psalm 89, of each of these passages that we've just read through, hang upon God's name and David's name, because they're one and the same. Let's go to the book of Revelation. Okay. The prophet in the New Testament. prophets. Writing. Turn to it's Revelation 20. Yeah. Turn to Revelation 22, 16. Uh-huh. Revelation 22 is where in the Bible? Oh, okay. Revelation 22, 16. I, Yeshua have sent my angel to give you this testimony for the churches. Now, what's the testimony you think Jesus is going to give to all the churches? You think he's going to tell them, I'm the son of God. You think he's going to tell them, I'm the spotless, sinless lamb. I'm the one that paid for all the sin of the world. No, he's going to tell them, congratulations. We got your new DNA test in and you're whatever you want to be. I sent my angel. Social distancing is important, people. Remember it. The testimony that he wants his angel to present to the churches is, I am the root and offspring of David and the bright and morning star. At the very end of the book, that is the one testimony he wants his churches to grasp, is that he is the root and offspring of David. You see, there's so much being said in that little statement. He is saying, I am the one that Chronicles is pointing to. I am the one that Genesis was speaking about. I am the one that the prophets were aiming towards because I am the offspring of David. Now do you see the importance of having nine chapters of genealogies? It wouldn't be possible to know that salvation has come for all the churches if we did not know that this is a son of David. One thing that I want you to consider is we are coming to a close. When you're reading the book of Revelation in the next passage, these were written to a mixed congregation of Jews and Gentiles. See, the churches that are represented in the very beginning of Revelation, each of them are found in Turkey. There are remnants of diaspora Jews in those locations and people exactly like you and I that are a mixed multitude of Gentile nations. And what he wanted them to remember was that he was the son of David. This next scripture that we're about to read is to a very similar setting. 
It's our last scripture. It's the one everybody thinks they understand. And their great understanding avoids what the text actually says. It is a tenet of biblical interpretation that we do not exalt a sod above the Peshat. So I am quite simply just going to read it. This is Romans 11, starting in verse 25. I do not want you to be ignorant. Estupido. (laughs) I do not want you to be ignorant of this mystery, brothers, so that you may not become conceited. Israel has experienced a hardening in part until the full number of Gentiles has come in. And so, all Israel will be saved, as it is written. The Deliverer will come from Zion. He will turn godlessness away from Jacob. Oh, come on. And this is my covenant with them. When... I take away their sin. As far as the gospel is concerned, they're enemies on your account. But as far as election is concerned, they are loved on account of the patriarchs. For God's gifts and his call are irrevocable. Amen. Why don't you all stand to your feet? I hope you have enjoyed nine chapters of Chronicles. Next Monday, we will return to a word-by-word, line-by-line study of every chapter remaining in the book. But we wanted a creative way to give you a picture of the whole forest instead of getting fascinated with an oddly pronounced leaf on an individual branch on one of the trees. Also, I think if I asked my wife to read those nine chapters, that while the call on Israel is irrevocable, some of the promises she's made to me might be revocable. Our hope is that this has enriched your life. It's the first time... In 27 years of teaching through the Bible, I have ever condensed nine chapters into two hours and two minutes, especially with so many genealogies. But I think that the Lord brought us to something that will help this body and those that listen to this message in the future. As we close in prayer, I would like you to consider the unbreakable nature of a promise made by God. Very few in the Bible are without condition. But the ones that are without condition are special. Go back through your family banner. Go back through your mezuzah. 
He is faithful to his word. Make sure that you are faithful to yours. Resist the urge during difficult times to reinterpret what God has said to fit your circumstances. That's how you get entire branches of theology that are ignorant of something plainly stated in the Word. I'm hearing it almost every day about Romans 13. It does not say what everybody says that it says. And they did not believe that it said that last month. But their circumstances have changed. And now it could be difficult. And so they are reinterpreting God's word and feel completely justified in doing it. In fact, I keep speaking to men that cannot tell me what is in, Revel- what is in Romans 12 and they cannot tell me what is in Romans 14 but they've become an expert on the first four verses of Romans 13 and can't tell me what verses 6, 7, and 8 say. Make sure that your circumstances, your view of history do not cause you to reinterpret the only flawless thing that we have been given as a people, the Word of God. Cling to it. Meditate on it. Recount it. Rejoice in it. It will bring light to your eyes. And it will make even stupid people wise. Father, we thank you for the chance to meet with you tonight. Lord, we believe that you are a covenant-keeping, promise-keeping God. And we are so thankful to be included in your plan. Lord, we want to reign with you, the King of Israel, and we want to reign with the heirs of the promise as co-heirs with them. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.